episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to NextQuest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Gina Martin, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, somatic experiencing. Welcome to the show, Gina. Thanks, Noah. So tell us, what are your credentials and experience? Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and um, I have a Master of Arts in Counseling from the Seminary of the Southwest, and I'm an intermediate um, student in the Somatic Experiencing Training Program. Cool. Um, What does intermediate mean? Um, So it's a three-year training program, and you have um, three modules in the beginning year, three in the intermediate year, and then two longer modules of training in the advanced year. And so I've completed intermediate one and two, um, and just have one more module until I can start advanced. So Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So what is the name of your practice? Uh, It's called Pilgrims on a Journey, and... um, is it okay if I tell that story? Yeah, please do. Okay. Um, yeah, I actually named um, my practice when I was walking the Camino in Spain about two and a half years ago. And um, I was leaving Pamplona and I was like torn about how, what do I want to name my practice? I had, you know, some words that I liked that I thought might fit. Um, and I was walking with a Canadian woman and I said, oh, what if I call it Pilgrims on a Journey? And she goes, oh, it's like that song. And I was like, wait, you know this song? And so we had this like really powerful bonding experience. And that that's when I decided the name for my practice. That sounds like an appropriate practice naming activity, like, you know, and like experience, like, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of like good vibes about it, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. We, we sang the song too. So, which is, you know, a very somatic activity. So, of course. <laughs> it was yeah, good. yeah. Yeah. So, at Pilgrims on a Journey, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? 
Um, so I'm actually an out of network provider and I, um, I made this huge career shift during the pandemic and have not had time to get um, credentialed on any panels, but I'm really happy to offer people, you know, out of network, um, like a super bill for them to turn into their insurance company and to help them, you know, get it situated so that they can afford counseling too. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee available? I do reserve some sliding scale appointments in my practice. Okay, cool. Are they like traditional sliding scales with like the poverty guidelines that you use or is it more of a reduced fee? It's more of a reduced fee. Um, I, I work with um, a couple of different like church groups too. And so a lot of those referrals come from, you know, pastoral colleagues um, that know that I have some sliding scale availability in my practice. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Do you have weekend or evening appointments available? Um, I don't offer any weekend appointments. I do have evening appointments available sometimes, but most of those slots are taken right now. So, Okay. Are you currently seeing clients via telehealth, in person, or a combination of both? Um, most of my practice right now is online just because of the pandemic. Um, I am starting to see people in person. Um, I actually had my first in-person client in about six months, um, a couple of weeks ago. And, it, you know, it was, um, it was really good to be back in person. Yeah. Yeah. So do you plan to go back in person full time once things are, you know, a little safer? Yeah. I actually think that my practice is going to be a combination of telehealth and in-person. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, I have clients all over the state of Texas, just, you know, having lived in different parts of the state. And um, eventually, when it's a little bit safer to travel, part of my practice will be leading groups um, on retreats and different things. And so I like the flexibility of telehealth, as well as having in-person clients. Cool, cool. Now, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Um, so actually, um, it is not my first career. I am a United Methodist pastor. And I've been in ministry um, for about almost the last 20 years. And I started very young um, when I was 22 and have been a youth pastor. And then I went to seminary in New Jersey and then was a pastor in a local church um, full time until about a year and a half ago when I shifted to counseling um, and made that my primary, my primary ministry and my primary you know, vocation in life. What drew you to being a therapist and what prompted the shift? Um, so when I was first called into ministry at about 17 or 18 years of age, like counseling has always been a huge part of that. Um, I love hearing people's stories and just, you know, learning about them, um, hearing the different types of experiences that they've had. And um, so I just, it was kind of like a natural part of ministry. And I, and I've always wondered like how to make the two things fit together. Um, and so in, in the pandemic, um, I, you know, after I finished my, my LPC hours, I was just really drawn to sitting with people full time. And, and so it felt like the right time to make that shift. Um, I took a, a leave, um, about two years ago and, 
was discerning the shift probably for five years before that. And it just, it felt like the right time. Um, when I really wanted to just sit with people as opposed to, you know, having to like attend the finance meeting of the church and, you know, those things, not that those are not important, but, um, I really found that I felt most alive when I was sitting with people, um, and listening to their stories and getting to journey with them in a different way than I could in the local church. Okay, cool. So tell us a little more about yourself. Like what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music yeah. you're listening to, pets, etc. Oh, I do have a pet. Um, I have a miniature schnauzer named Zoe and she just turned nine earlier in November. And you wouldn't know that she's nine. She's crazy and fun. <laughs> um, we actually go hiking quite a bit. And um, that's probably like one of my one of the things I'm most passionate about is hiking. Um, I'm the like silly person who's out there with my hiking poles, you know, um, a number of times during the week. And there's really, you know, great trails in central Texas as well. Oh, for sure. Um, let's see what else. I love yoga and anything that's movement oriented. Of course you do. <laughs> Um, let's see. Of course you do because of the somatic experiencing, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Movement is super important, um, with somatic experiencing and, um, I, I crochet quite a bit too, which is, you know, just another type of movement. And, um, my grandma actually taught me that when I was probably like, I don't know, like 10 or 11. And then I picked it up again a few years ago. Um, I play the guitar and sing. Oh, cool. Yeah, I have a, a blue seagull that I absolutely love. And um, I lead groups on the Camino in Spain. And that's that's one of my like biggest things that I really enjoy. And I'm learning to play a drum called the djembe. Um, I'm not very good at it, but it's fun. And it's like a whole body experience. So yeah. that's, that's really fun. Um, and you had asked about TV shows too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love Grey's Anatomy. Um, I'm all <laughs> caught up um, on the current season, which is fun. And um, let's see. I love, oh, I, I recently started watching Doogie Howser, like the old ones. Do you nice. remember that show? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's really fun. So I, I'm watching that on, on Hulu right now. And, um, music is a big part of my life. Um, I have like a really diverse, um, interest in music. Um, probably one of my favorites right now is, um, the composer, Eric Whitaker. And, um, he writes all of these like really beautiful choral pieces. And, um, I like the band or it's just a person as sleeping at last. And Willie Nelson, the Beatles, so um, anything instrumental. So it's pretty, pretty diverse interest in music, um, both Very listening cool. and playing. Yeah. yeah. So Awesome. How long have you been playing the guitar? Um, let's see. I started, gosh, it's been over 20 years now. I was really bad for the first few years. And then <laughs> it like somehow just clicked all of a sudden. And I have improved slowly over time. So, yeah. That's cool. I have uh, an acoustic bass that I really enjoy playing. Oh, that's I suck cool. at it, but I love playing it. <laughs> you know, it, right? It just like, you just have to go for it sometimes. So yeah, that's fun. And I really actually prefer the acoustic bass versus electric. I don't know something about it. It's really cool. Um, so 
when you're in sessions with clients, you know, as therapists, we all have a variety of tools in our tool bag, right? What modalities do you draw upon and what are some of those tools that you pull out in session? Um, so I'm pretty existential just in my approach to everything, like to life. And, um, and so I really like to invite clients, you know, to sit with their questions. Um, I draw a lot on attachment theory as well to kind of help understand like how, how we are in relationship, not only to ourselves, but with other people and um, a lot of family systems, and I'm learning internal family systems right now as well. Um, but from my work in the church, I studied a lot about the work of Ed Friedman, and he, you know, was very big on like systems and how things mm-hmm. are interrelated. Um, and so I use a lot of that work um, with clients as well, and um, mindfulness. I, I'm very drawn to that, like, um, you know, inviting people into the present moment and of course, somatic experiencing, um, it's right. very much right. about like what's happening right now. Um, so yeah, pretty, um, I mean, CBT is great. Like, you know, most therapists are trained in it, but it's definitely not like my primary go-to. I'm more about the questions and inviting people to sit with the questions and, um, kind of explore things from a little bit different perspective. Gotcha. Okay. So when it comes to somatic experiencing, who developed this approach and and what's the story behind the waking the tiger? Yeah. So um, Peter Levine is the founder of somatic experiencing, and he actually started out studying animals and um, the way that they navigate stress. And he noticed that um, that animals don't seem to have like these lingering effects of trauma, even in the wild. And, you know, maybe there, there's a a smaller animal that gets chased by a larger animal. And he noticed that even after these, um, smaller animals were either able to, you know, fight or flee, you know, to run away, or maybe they went into a freeze response that somehow, um, eventually, sometimes it took longer than at other times, but that, that, um, survival energy, whether in any of those states, um, was able to get discharged from the body either by, you know, shaking, trembling, um, some kind of movement. Um, the way that I explain this to clients is, you know, if you like have a dog or a cat and maybe they get scared and sometimes they'll shake it off or something, or like my dog, after she has a bath, she like has to shake profusely for like, a number of minutes um, because she's like, okay, mom, you have traumatized me. And, um, and then, and then she's okay. And she can continue on with her day. Um, so, so that's what, what Peter started to notice um, in animals. And he really became curious. Um, he seems to be a man of many questions and he knows like how to ask the right questions. And so he started to kind of incorporate this with his own clients um, in therapy And he noticed that oftentimes we get stuck in the story and about processing the story, um, our trauma, and that can be any type of trauma, um, but that we often want to tell the story and go back over the story over and over. And, you know, he started to ask his, um, his clients, like, you know, what do you notice in your body when you're talking about, you know, let's say there's a car accident. 
um, when you're talking about this, this car accident that you experienced, um, and you know, they might be, Oh, well, you know, I feel really disconnected from my body. I can't feel my feet. And so he just became very curious about that and about how to help people, um, kind of feel what's happening in the present moment and begin to be able to tolerate the body sensations and the different things that were getting stuck in their nervous system so that that can be discharged. Um, that survival energy can be discharged. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's a more gentle way, I think, of working with trauma than some, some other modalities as well. And yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I know you explained a little bit earlier about the types of training one needs to practice somatic experiencing. So mm -hmm. just to kind of summarize that, you said it's like a three-year type of program. Yeah, yeah. Um, to get okay. your somatic experiencing practitioner um, certificate. Yeah, it's, it's three years. Um, and it's not just therapists that are involved in it. There are body right. workers and um, medical doctors, you know, you can be from a number of disciplines to be, to be in the training program too. Very cool. Yeah. So, you know, I know you just said a little bit about how you generally orient clients to somatic experiencing. Is there anything you would add to that? Yeah. Um, I think kind of one of the biggest parts is um, it's about helping people um, begin to, to re-regulate their nervous system. Um, a lot of times when people experience trauma, um, we can get stuck in these high activation or like high alert states where we're constantly scanning for danger. And um, SC can be really helpful um, by inviting people to learn about what's happening in their nervous system. Um, there's a, there's a really big emphasis on psychoeducation. And so I, and many other somatic experiencing people, they, we want our clients to understand what's happening in their nervous system so that they can, um, begin to help, you know, regulate themselves. Um, and so it's, it's, it's less about the story, not that that's not important, but, um, it's about, you know, what do you, what do you notice in your surroundings? If we just take a minute, um, to notice your feet on the ground. Do you hear anything? Do you see anything in your environment? And this can be done both in person or online as well. And so, um, just to get people to kind of understand, it's not just about like telling the story over and over again, because that can be re-traumatizing and reactivating, but it's about helping the big expansions that happen in the nervous system when we have all this, um, this bound, um, survival energy and about slowly titrating that and helping people release it so that it's not overwhelming or as overwhelming. And then it slowly gets released and discharged, just like we see in animals, um, where they're able to discharge that kind of like intense energy, um, from their bodies and their nervous systems as well. What would be an example of, you know, say someone experienced some trauma, mm -hmm. what would be an example of how that could impact somebody's nervous system and how somatic experiencing could help with that? Um, so let's say, um, let's stay with the car accident example. Okay. Um, yeah. So a number of years ago, I'll just use my own example. Um, I was parked um, at a stop sign and I had just moved to the Rio Grande Valley 
and there was a school bus behind me and I had not moved and the bus like hit the back of my car pretty hard Mm. at a stop sign. Yeah. It was very, very challenging. And, um, you know, there was a lot of shock involved in that for me. And I was, I started to have like just some really intense back pain and, you know, I was having trouble sleeping. And, um, so I worked with, with somebody just to, um, like I was afraid to, I I drove still, but I was really like hyper vigilant when I would drive. Totally. And, you know, I avoided that intersection and it was right by the church that I was working at at the time. And so like, (sighs) it was hard to avoid the intersection. Um, and you know, I was just, I was so hyper vigilant when I would drive and like, I could feel like the muscles in my, my neck and shoulders. Like I was just tight all of, all of the time. Um, it was almost like I was always bracing for that impact again, even though I was safe. Um, but my nervous system didn't know that I was safe. And so, um, it was very easy when there was like, even just a little, you know, slowing down of traffic. I would, I would have kind of this, not, not a, not a full blown panic attack, but I could feel my body like getting ready to prepare for that impact again. Um, and so, you know, SE is really helpful in kind of, um, giving that, that bound energy, like that, that hypervigilance, um, that I was experiencing kind of working with it slowly, um, just like you would in chemistry, you're not going to add two chemicals together really quickly because then it's going to make this big explosion. Um, but just to add a little bit of activation at a time until there's some settling in the nervous system. And then I can, you know, you can begin to, to be more aware of your surroundings and some of that hypervigilance can begin to shift. Um, and, and that took a while for me. Like actually I had a, a woman, you know, bump the back of my car recently. Again, I was stopped and, um, I didn't realize, oh, there's still some of the residual, you know, survival energy. Um, and then my current, you know, somatic experiencing therapist, like just helped me kind of release some of that energy, um, you know, just so that it, it wasn't so stuck. And I didn't, it wasn't as long lasting as the original, like when the bus hit me. Um, yeah, the settling happened more easily because I was used to practicing those skills that I had learned in my own therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what sorts of things, you know, we just talked about trauma a little bit, but what Mm -hmm. sorts of things can somatic experiencing help with? Um, any, any type of trauma from, you know, falls, um, car accidents, um, any kind of, um, trauma, you know, sexual trauma, um, surgery. We learn a lot about that in the training program about anesthesia and kind of that that can have residual effects in the nervous system as well. Um, any type of like betrayal trauma, attachment trauma, um, Oh goodness. What else? Many, many things. Um, so really any type of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and since we all experience that at some point, I mean, we're living through this, you know, collective trauma right now. And, um, so SE can just really help people, um, to have a more resilient nervous system and, and release that, that survival energy that can get stuck in the nervous system. 
diving a little deeper into that, can you tell us a little more about the rationale and science behind somatic experiencing? Um, so SE is actually, um, it's, it's an evidence-based, it's not um, evidence-supported. Um, there are some people who are very much against SE, um, and there's, there's a lot of studies that are being done about somatic experiencing and how um, it can help, you know, just help resolve trauma um, in a gentler way. Um, than some of the other more somatic based, um, somatic, excuse me, somatic based modalities, um, as well. So that's definitely something that I'm still learning about too. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it sounds like a lot of it has to do with this idea of trauma being stuck in the body, right? And somatic experiencing offering a way to work toward discharging that, the, those, I guess, what would, what would you call those? The, like the, like stress oh, the bound, or, or, or hypervigilance well, like, or. Yeah. I mean, it can be any number of those things, but it's like the bound energy. energy. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the undischarged survival energy. That's um, what I was, the, the word yeah. I was looking for that you had said earlier. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. out of curiosity, what, how does somatic experiencing go about helping discharge that energy? Like what, what are some like techniques? Like how does it work? Yeah. So um, let's see, I'm thinking about, well, let's go back to the car, car accident example. Um, For a long time, like just in my own body, I was, you know, just really tight. I was having, I was starting to have other like, physical symptoms that, that things had not kind of gone back to normal, that there was like this discharge of energy. Um, and so some somatic experiencing practitioners will actually use like touch skills and, you know, supportive touch to help, um, to help if there's a particular area in the body, you know, for me, it's like my shoulders and my back, um, and to help, the, the um, discharging of that energy. And so a lot of times um, when we're working with clients in therapy, you know, there's so much emphasis on um, thinking about what has happened. And SE is a, a gentler way that invites us to kind of um, resource. And so like a resource, um, one for me is um, I actually keep things that I can hold on to. And I have this for clients that I meet with in person too. Like I give them something to kind of ground themselves in the moment. Um, And as opposed to, you know, just like dissociating or um, being really checked out from what, what is happening um, as they're talking about the trauma. Um, Because, you know, at one point, maybe a dissociation or a particular coping skill was helpful for that person. It helped them survive. And when, when they're noticing symptoms, that particular coping skill isn't necessarily helping them anymore. Right. And so, um, when, when the survival, like the survival energy can just become very intense. Um, we just, we slowly help people release that, um, 
by, you know, okay, let's pause for a minute. I use a lot of pauses in SE with my, with my clients um, when they might be trying to tell like what's happened over the last week, how they've, you know, not been sleeping well or whatever's been going on with them. It's like, well, let's slow down. Um, let's just kind of titrate this a little bit. Um, and so sometimes discharging of energy can be something um, really simple, like, you know, maybe they feel more grounded in their body as they're talking about like a particular grief or an argument that they've had with their partner, um, where maybe they felt really threatened and the partner was just trying to figure out what they wanted for dinner. And, and it just helps them kind of, um, be more present to letting that energy and that like, um, just letting things shift naturally on their own um, because our nervous system has this innate capacity to move towards healing and move, move towards um, equilibrium and restoration. And so often we get stuck in our heads thinking about things as opposed to just being with what, what our body and our nervous system is trying to do naturally. Um, and so like a small discharge of energy might be, um, a client who like, maybe their eyes were really big because they're like really hypervigilant as they're talking about something. And then maybe they begin to yawn. Um, maybe they feel their feet on the ground more. Um, maybe they notice, Oh, my heart rate slowed a little bit. Like I can, I can breathe better. And so even there are even subtle ways that energy is discharged. Um, my practicum student, um, would observe my sessions last year when she was working with me. <laughs> she, um, I, I didn't realize I said this, but I would often say to people, you know, they would be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm yawning. I'm like, no, this is good. Like this is your body, your nervous system discharging energy. Um, and so she got me this coffee mug that says burps and yawns are welcome here. So, um, <laughs> that's <funny>. yeah, <laughs> so, that's funny. Yeah. So, so is, is what you're saying that bringing attention to the body is part of what's helpful with discharging that energy? Um, it can be. Yeah. Yeah. For some people, it can be a little more activating. And so we might work with one of the different, um, different elements. Um, there's a particular part of somatic experiencing called Cybam. Right. And yeah. It, yeah, it means uh, sensation is the S and image is the second, uh, the I. And B is behavior and A is affect and M is meaning. And um, this really clicked for me in the training when they explained it like different channels. And so for some people, sensation is like um, a channel that they move towards very easily. Like, you know, like asking a client, what do you notice in your body when you're talking about that car accident or something. Um, and they might say, Oh, you know, my stomach feels kind of queasy or, Oh my goodness, my heart is racing. Um, and, and if that becomes too activating for them, I might, you know, move to, is there, is there an image that might, that we can maybe bring in a resource that we can bring in to help kind of help you settle a little bit right now? Like, is there something that's helpful? Um, you know, and some clients are very driven by that image channel. And so they can say, oh yeah, I love being, um, you know, at the beach or in a kayak or going for a walk with my dog or something. 
And um, so you just bring these different elements in that can help um, help clients to, to renegotiate the trauma um, from a from a bottom up perspective, where it's not just all about thinking too. Um, and meaning is usually the last or one of the last um, channels that you go to because we often want to jump to meaning and to understand everything before right. the nervous system and the body has had a chance to discharge that, that bound survival energy. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what are some other key concepts that are helpful in understanding somatic experiencing? Um, let's see. Um, I've talked a little bit about orienting. Um, and I mentioned earlier psychoeducation. That's probably like one of the biggest pieces of SE just in general is um, it's, it's not about the somatic experiencing therapist being the expert. It's about joining with the client and, and helping them become the expert on like what's happening in their nervous system, because everybody's going to um, be a little bit different. And so um, so that's, pr- that's probably, that's one of the places I usually start with clients is on that, that psychoeducation piece too. Um, I'm also curious about touch and how that plays into the discharge of energy. Yeah. Um, so that's actually what, something we learn in the advanced year. Um, and so I can speak a little bit just from my own experience of that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I have worked with two different um, somatic experiencing professionals um, in my own therapy and um, one that recently retired. And we actually, she and I did a lot of table work or touch work. um, And there are different ways to do that. Some people use like a table um, and some, some do other types of, you know, supportive touch. And that can be anything from, you know, just be like sitting on the couch together or, um, you know, um, let's say a client, I know I can speak for myself. I know sometimes I have a lot of activation around, um, with my breathing. Um, I'm asthmatic and some of my, um, some of my own trauma is around, you know, difficulties with breathing. And, um, I, one of the SCPs that I've worked with has just like, with my permission, it's always about, you know, consent and about, you know, is this okay? Would it be helpful um, if you had some support here? And there's, there's always a negotiation that's happening. It's never just like, I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. there's always yeah. consent. That's super important. Um, but I know one thing that's been really helpful for me is like, I tend to want to dissociate when, when I have trouble breathing and, um, one of the SCPs that I've worked with has actually like um, helped me stay grounded by asking me if it was okay to just like kind of put her hand gently, like where, where my diaphragm is like, you know, right in between my lungs. And, um, and sometimes I will put my hand there just to kind of ground myself too. And instead of being afraid of the sensation of what I'm feeling and wanting to just like dissociate, it really, it helps the, the energy kind of move through as opposed to me going into that habituated pattern of checking out or, you know, going to thinking. Um, 
And, and that, I, I just know for me, that's been really, really helpful. So it sounds like it, the, like the purpose behind that is to help clients feel grounded and uh, help clients regulate in mm-hmm. those moments. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to going to the pattern that they normally go to, right. it's about developing, you know, new patterns and, and getting that, that, um, that bound energy um, to move through and, and to, to, so that it's not as activating mm-hmm. the next time. Yeah. I see. I could see that being helpful in creating like new neuro pathways too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do somatic experiencing sessions typically look like? Um, it really depends, Noah, on like what the client brings to the session. Um, right. Yeah, it's, um, you know, sometimes I will have clients um, come to their session and they're just really activated. Like they're um, maybe, you know, maybe they had a a fender bender on the way to Mm -hmm. the session, whether that's, you know, either online or in person. And so the first thing that we're going to do is we're just going to work on grounding and orienting. I mean, those are the basic skills in SE um, and they're, they're tools and skills that, that we return to over and over again. Um, you know, and, and part of it, um, especially with new clients is just kind of seeing like learning about the ways that they are resilient and what resources that they have. And so with each client, that's going to be different. Um, One thing that can be really helpful for a particular client may be super activating for the next client. Um, Yeah. So it's really about being in the present moment and just, you know, meeting the client where they are on that particular day. Um, You know, the longer that I work with people, so I have some clients that I've worked with for a number of years. And the longer that I work with people, the, the more they usually start to kind of have a language for resourcing, grounding, orienting, you know? Um, and so they really get invested in, Oh, this was helpful for me this week. Like I went and took a walk and I noticed, Oh, the trees are starting to change. Like they, they start kind of embodying these things in their own life to, to help themselves, um, as well. So it really depends on where people are in their therapy. It depends on, um, what's happening in that, in the present moment too. Um, and a client sometimes who's pretty well-regulated might have just had a really challenging week and there's something about that that's activating. And so I just really try to meet them where they are. Um, I utilize, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just saying that makes sense. Um, I tend to utilize a lot of silence um, in sessions too, and not, you know, trying to like rush ahead um, because sometimes there are things happening within the client um, that maybe we don't even need language for. And it's just about maybe being in that sensation channel or that image channel are just noticing the emotion, the affect that is present um, when you're yeah. talking about something and giving space for that to settle. Um, yeah, that's definitely been a growing edge as I've you know learned more about somatic experiencing is not trying to rush ahead and 
you know, kind of make things happen. The nervous system is always going to be orienting us towards healing if we, if we give it enough space to allow that to happen. Makes sense. Well, is there anything I haven't asked about somatic experiencing that you think is important for people to know? Um, hmm. Oh, I like that question. Very um, long and opens up the door. I'm sure there's so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I guess part, maybe like one thing that I, that I think is really important is, um, I feel like it's a very gentle approach and I know in my own journey, I've, I've had a number of therapists over the years and I'm very thankful for all of them and the, the different gifts that they bring. Um, but I know when I found somatic experiencing, like it was, it was the way that I had been working with clients and I kind of peripherally knew about SE for a while, um, but I didn't have a language for it. And I think because SE is, is gentle and it's, it's slower. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's always slow. It just means like the approach to trauma is just a lot more gentle, I think, than some other approaches. Um, I, I think it just, it, it can be really helpful. Um, you know, whether that's in individual therapy with a group, um, I use it when I work with groups, either in, you know, spiritual direction groups or counseling groups, and I usually use it in individual spiritual direction as well with people, um, it can just really give people the resources and the tools they need um, to help navigate and to heal from whatever they're experiencing, whether that's anxiety, um, you know, any types of the trauma that we talked about earlier too. Okay, very cool. Thank you for all that info, lots of good info there. Um, So shifting the focus back to you as a therapist, what kinds of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Um, So when I was working on my hours for my LPC, I actually lived um, in the Rio Grande Valley. And um, the way that I got clients was I partnered with a medical mission in the, in the Valley. And um, there are lots of undocumented people who just couldn't afford counseling. Um, The poverty level in the Valley in general is very low. And so um, I felt like I, I had this really rich experience of having a lot of diversity um, in, in the clients that I served. Um, and, um, you know, people of different cultural backgrounds who had lived in the Valley their whole lives. And that was, you know, completely new, um, to me. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really helpful and it, it led me to other work, you know, with undocumented populations as well. Um, I don't have a lot of experience working with transgender clients, um, but it is definitely, you know, it's something I'm open to. Um, I've had some LGBTQ clients um, and, you know, I feel like just kind of my style is just to learn, you know, like just to meet people where they are and learn from them as well. Like they're the expert on their own experience. And that's something that's really important to me as a clinician as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. So, you know, a lot of people get nervous. They schedule, they finally work up the nerve to schedule an appointment, call and schedule or email or whatever. Yeah. And then they have their first appointment set and then they're just anticipating that first appointment, right? Mm -hmm. So to make that anxiety a little easier, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on a more ongoing basis as well? So, I mean, for new clients, I don't try to like get... A, a long, a super long detailed history on the first session. Like I invite clients to share their story over a number of weeks and, and feel that that's an ongoing, you know, way for me to learn about them. Um, and so I've had some clients in those first, you know, first, second, third session who are like, oh, you're not just wanting all the details. You're, you're actually like wanting to know, about my life and what's happening. And, um, and there's, I don't pressure people to say, okay, tell me exactly what you want to work on, um, in that first or second session. I I just, I let that happen a little more organically. And, um, that's, I think that can be a little bit, um, that's a a gentler way of approaching those first initial sessions, especially, with people who they're maybe nervous to start with somebody else, or maybe they've never done therapy before. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Um, oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. <laughs> it's a hard um, one. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think, I think that some of my clients would say that I'm pretty reflective and that I'm not afraid to ask hard questions and that I'm also not, my style is not super directive. Um, I can be directive if need be, if there's like a safety issue, Um, but that my style is more, um, I want to, I want to know my clients and, and know you like, n- not just know what's bringing them to therapy, but, but to have like a deep understanding of who they are and where they come from and their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, I know that the, my non-directiveness has been frustrating for some clients and those are probably not the clients that I work best with. Um, but yeah, just, you know, um, that I'm a person who likes questions and will sit with them in their questions. Okay, cool. Now, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And just to clarify, when I say cry, I mean like shed a tear or two, not absolutely bawling. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I am definitely, um, I, I like to laugh. Um, I, I have cried in session occasionally with clients. Um, especially when people are sharing things maybe that they've never told anybody else. Um, One of the greatest gifts that clients have given me is just to allow me to be with them in their journey. Um, And that doesn't just mean like the successes, but that means like the places where they're really struggling. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I've been known to cry with clients too. Um, But yeah, I, I, I laugh a lot too. I mean, 
especially when people are, you know, at the beginning of, of therapy, like maybe a couple sessions and they have like that, they burp really loudly in session and they're like, oh my gosh. I'm like, oh no, no, this is good. <laughs> and so we, <laughs> we laugh about it. Yeah. So there's that discharge of energy, huh? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I explain that it's a, it's a teaching moment too. So <laughs> it's usually awesome. a moment filled with laughter as well, or, you know, if the dog barks or their, their animal does something funny behind them, especially, you know, yeah. most of my clients are online right now. It's like, it would be awkward to just be like in this really deep moment with a client and like their cats going crazy behind them right. and not acknowledge like, is your cat okay? You know? So, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely comfortable, you know, laughing, um, with clients and, and the occasional, you know, just moved by things that they, that they share as well. Absolutely. I don't know about you, but in this pandemic in telehealth, I have seen more cat buttholes than I ever thought I would ever (laughs) see in my life. (laughs) I will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Or or like people's dogs just, you know, going crazy or something or like barking when somebody rings the doorbell, any, any number of things. Yeah. Right. And, and it's funny too, like the places where clients will meet you you know, like where they're set up in their space too, yeah. um, you know, and they're apologizing and I'm like, Hey, we're all doing the pandemic together. We're doing the best we can. So yeah. yeah. And a lot of times that has to do with pets too. <laughs> <laughs> it's another way to get to know your clients. Right. Right. Like right. That. Yeah. So my next question and probably one of my favorite questions is how do you define holding space for someone? I think just sitting with them and um, just allowing them to be wherever they are and to not have like a prescription for where they need to be, you know, an hour from now or a week from now. Um, and just being present with them and, and inviting them to be present with, with what's going on for them as well. Because I think oftentimes we want to, we don't want to have space for our struggles and our challenges. We just want to focus on the things that are going well. And um, yeah, I, I also feel like holding space for someone. I mean, for me, especially with my background, like that's, that's a high calling. Like it's mm-hmm. something that really, um, I think it's always been a part of my life and who, who I'm created to be as a person. And, um, yeah, I, d- I don't think we have enough spaces in our world where people can just be who they are without, um, without a lot of expectation or a lot of judgment. And well, you know, sometimes I thinking of the example of somebody who may be severely depressed, but is constantly putting on a happy face for everyone else. Right. You know, giving them that space to just be sad. Yeah. 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 As opposed to having, you know, yeah, like you said, to be happy or um, to push that away or, Yeah. And I think too, especially with the groups that I work with, 
Um, I think holding space in that, in that setting means just being able to create some safety mm-hmm. and um, some vulnerability and invite people to be vulnerable in those spaces. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Holding space in groups, I feel like, is can be difficult, but also I feel like it can take a lot of energy as a therapist to hold Mm -hmm. that space in like a group setting. It's a lot to hold sometimes. Yeah. And that's one of the beauties of somatic experiencing that I've learned is because I've also done some like training workshops about somatic experiencing and spiritual practices. And I remember having a question for the presenter one time about how, like, because I'm always exhausted after group. And, and I realized it was because I was taking on the sole responsibility of holding the space, whereas that's something that we, we need to be building into the group process. And um, that shifted everything for me. And, and to be you know, grounded enough in myself and inviting pauses in the group time where it's not just filled with talking the whole time. Um, that's been huge. That's been a really, like, transformational part of my own journey as a therapist. It's like, oh, we're holding this space together. And to name that, whether that's in a therapy group, um, I do a lot of work with college students, um, but also with, with pastors and other therapists in these, you know, spiritual direction groups where it's naming that and saying, you know, we're building this community together. We're holding space for one another. Um, Just the simple act of naming it has been really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, I don't feel as tired after those groups anymore, even though it's a good tired. Yeah, no. And, and I, I think that's true. You know, I think that in the beginning of, of groups, especially more like process oriented groups, the therapist does do a lot of the holding space. But I think that through that, um, you know, that example, um, you know, the members in the group eventually like understand what what is their responsibility within that context as well. And then, you know, I always have felt like a good group is one that can kind of direct itself with the least amount of therapist intervention possible. Those are my favorite. Yeah. Just to like watch something that has been, you know, that has taken time to create and like connections to be made and trust to be established. It's just something beautiful about that. Yeah. Yeah, as you're saying that, no, I'm thinking just over, or I'm thinking about a particular group that I, that I led and just the people that were so willing after about five weeks to just be really vulnerable. And, you know, one person in particular shared something that was very, they had never shared that in a group setting before. And to see the other members of the group just hold that and reflect that back to the person without judgment and, and with a lot of love and care. Um, it changed that, that person's life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So next question I'm curious about, cause I love hearing these little stories that everybody has. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? And a supervisor could have been in any capacity. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, 
probably to just slow down and take a breath. Um, I have a lot of energy and sometimes I forget to breathe, even though I'm constantly reminding clients to do that. And, um, yeah, that's, that's hard. We, you know, we're always on to the next session and our schedule is very full and just to have some spaciousness in my daily life, whatever that looks like. And it looks different every week too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice as an LPC? Oh goodness. Um, I mean, I've learned, I think, just how to, how not to, it's a hard question. Yeah, it is. Because there's so much. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, oh gosh. Yeah, I think I think I've learned one of the most important things is that in order for me to show up and and journey with other people and their healing, that I have to be willing to do my own work. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, and to be open and honest um, when I struggle, and to know like when I need to reach out and, um, you know, to, to practice. I know we talk a lot about self-care, but that's, that's huge. Um, so important. Yeah. I can, I can tell, I think that the farther I get into the SE work too, I can tell when something is getting stuck in my own body, like after holding space for clients for a number Mm -hmm. of hours, it's like, I need to get up and move. And so just listening to the, to the wisdom that's within my own body, because that's what I'm inviting my clients to do. Right. Yeah. And um, to be willing to just practice, you know, to practice what, um, what I'm teaching and, and what I'm sharing with clients. Yeah. Cause if not, yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not any good for anybody, you know, we're, we're not able to show up authentically um, in any space that we're invited to inhabit. Agreed. Agreed. So what do you do to take care of yourself? And after a particularly long, hard day, is there just one thing you have to do? Um, yeah, I, um, I have a number of things that I do. I really enjoy, you know, yoga. I'll go out in the backyard with my dog and run around with her. Um, um, I practice a type of prayer called centering prayer, and that has been really helpful. Um, and so I know that when I'm not practicing that, I can kind of get out of sorts and get a little discombobulated. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, anything having to do with movement, though. So it can't just be centering prayer. It has to be like that coupled with movement, too, just to kind of like a things- hike. Yeah. Oh, a hike. Yes. Yeah. A hike. Um, I, um, play the piano very badly, but (laughs) I, I 
that can be a full body experience, like where there's movement. And it's funny because my dog will come and like, um, lay on her bed when I, like, if she's outside, when I start playing the piano at the end of the day, she's like, she wants to get in cause she wants to be there. So, That's so um, cute. yeah, it's really fun. Um, like she thinks it's for her. <laughs> yes, it's her own. It's her own private concert. Even though my piano is wildly out of tune and I don't play I that it. well, <laughs> so she's my my audience. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Um, you know, a lot of times I I have a number of friends that are that are therapists or pastors who also you know sit with people and talk with them, and so usually I'll call somebody just for like five or 10 minutes to kind of check in. Um, yeah. Like how was your day? And we'll just kind of touch base. So, um, and there's usually a walk involved with that. You know, I'm usually walking as I'm having that conversation too. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Next question is another one of my favorites. How would you define happiness? Oh, I think that's a loaded word, Noah. I know. I know. Yeah. That's, that's why it's on here. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I've learned from somatic experiencing that I've incorporated into my own life is about moving towards ease. And, um, I like that. Tell me more about that. Yeah. I feel like I feel like moving towards ease is about not making things more difficult and, um, and again, it goes back to being in the present moment Mm -hmm. and not trying to think 10 steps ahead, which I have a tendency to do that. I'm a planner. Um, I'm in two on my Enneagram and, you know, it's like, um, I, I think, I think ease or, you know, being mindful about being in the present moment that, that fits better for me than the word happiness. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I feel like happiness is, I feel like in some ways it's elusive. I, I like the I like the word joy as well, like moments of joy, because you can have joy even in the midst of like really challenging grief, mm-hmm. um, I've lost both of my grandparents in just a little over two years or two, two of my grandparents and they were, I mean, besides my mom, like they were the people that have been there the most. And, um, and one was very sudden. And so I feel like I can move towards ease or there can be moments of joy, even as the grief is present and it's not at the exclusion of the other, but I feel like with happiness, it's like, that's something that we're striving towards. And with, with ease, you know, or being in the present moment, it feels more like it's just a way of being as opposed Mm -hmm. to this like striving and kind of like trying to claw your way towards something. Well, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you here. I think happiness is like fleeting. Right. Um, And, 
And I think a lot of people tend to think of happiness as like an absolute, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like, like when you said it's, you know, we can feel positive emotions even amongst negative ones. And I think that's part of like holding the dialectic, right? Yeah. Like having two opposing things, two, two opposing ideas and both being able to be true at the same time, you know, um, but, you know, happiness is not a state of being. Um, it is not something that we achieve and stay at. You know, it's something that um, I think it's more about appreciating the little things than, you know, achieving a state of happiness and being there. It just doesn't. Yeah. It's very absolute in my mind, very kind of all or nothing. Well, and it takes so much more energy to be in a particular state as opposed to being with what's happening right now right, in the moment. Yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with the work of um, Richard Rohr? I'm not. He is um, a contemplative and a contemplative, you know, spiritual person. And he talks about this idea of everything belonging um, and how it's not about like positive and negative emotions, even though there are, there are, you know, we notice that there's different emotions um, and how we often like bristle against negative emotions. Right. Yeah. Um, and we like are scrambling towards the positive ones and we miss so much if we're always, and I feel like that's a, a heightened activation state. If yeah. we're always striving for this, elusive thing as opposed to, you know, noticing, like even right now, as we're talking, I'm looking over to my right and I see a picture of my grandparents on my piano and there's both like this profound gratitude that I'm feeling right now. And, and there is a sense of grief and, and both of those are able to be present in the same space and within me, as opposed to having to like brace against one and receive the other one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I'm, and I'm having this aha as we're talking right now, I feel like that is kind of the part of the language that like contemplative spirituality, like the work of Richard War, but also somatic experiencing has given me um, and something that I can not only bring into the therapy room, but just it's kind of informed you know, my, my whole journey. Totally, totally, totally see that. Cool. So the next question could potentially activate you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I just read it. <laughs> I'm ready, Noah. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? So I had a client this is a, a number of years ago, I had a client show up on like the completely wrong day of the week for their session. And I was like knee deep in something else. Like I was, it was when I was still serving full-time as a pastor and part-time as a therapist. And so I was actually officing out of the church where I was serving as a senior pastor and my admin was, you know, she like beeped my phone and said, Hey, so-and-so's here. And I was like, so caught off guard. Like I was just kind of like, no, I'm working on my sermon. Like I had the whole morning blocked out for this. And, um, and then I have to go to the hospital. I had, I had like my day planned and 
And so I was like, I didn't know what to do. It was kind of like, I was kind of, you know, like a deer in the headlights, like, well, they're here. And they drove from a different, like, like 20 minutes. I knew they didn't live like right there in town. And so we, like, I started the session and I was, I mean, I was so distracted at the beginning. Like I was trying to be present for this person and listen to them. And I don't even remember what they were talking about. The the content's not important. And it was about halfway through the session and I just had to pause. And I was like, what day is today? And they, they told me, and, and I usually, I think I saw this person on Tuesday and it was Monday and that's, and Monday, I had my Monday very structured. Um, at that time in my life. And I was just like, I think you're here on the wrong day. And I just blurted it (laughs) out. (laughs) And I was like, I'm pretty sure your session's not until tomorrow. And, but I was just kind of, so it was like, I was trying to be present, but I was just completely caught off guard. And, um, but we laughed about it. Like I said, I need to pause and like, look at my calendar. And (laughs) sure enough, they came on the wrong day, the correct time, but the wrong day. And it was just like, and it, again, it wasn't, nobody was angry about it, but it right, was yeah. just kind of like the fact that I think I was embarrassed because I was just so up in my head about what uh-huh. is happening, what's going on, what I, I was just so thrown Caught off. off guard. Yeah. 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 And so, um, just the, and then that I blurted out, I think you're here on the wrong day. Like what day is <laughs> Halfway <it>? through the <laughs> session. <laughs> yes. We were halfway through a 50 minute session and I just, That's so funny. But what we laughed about it and it, luckily it wasn't like a brand new client. It was a, it, it was a pretty long established client. I think I'd been working with them about six months at that point. So I was thankful for that. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't like session two and they're like, oh, this lady's crazy. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was, it, it, yeah, I was completely caught off guard. And then later when I left, my admin was like, are you okay? You really look like something's not okay. And I didn't tell her any of the content of the session, obviously, but I was just like, yep, person showed up on the completely wrong day. And I had no idea which way was up at that point. <laughs> so that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't happen as much when you know you're online, but in person yeah. it was like I, I was so I don't know, I still laugh about it now. So it was that's a it good was one. interesting. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the next question you've answered before, but just for the sake of asking the question, because I like to make sure I ask all the questions, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yeah, I, um, I am in therapy. I work with a somatic experiencing practitioner that I see, um, mostly in person. Sometimes we'll meet online. Um, and I'm very thankful for the work that, that we do together. Um, it helps me helps me stay grounded and just aware of, you know, any, any issues that, um, that I need to just kind of be mindful of for myself and, you know, kind of work through my own growing edges is what I like to call them. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Gina, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you in your practice? Um, yeah, I think one of the the most important things is um, I work with a lot of pastors and ministry professionals, um, people of faith. Um, I don't advertise myself as a Christian counselor, um, 
you know, I am a therapist who is a person of faith. And um, if clients are wanting to talk about spiritual things in their in their therapy, I always leave that up to the client and, and I just want to meet them wherever they are and with whatever they bring to therapy. Um, and I know a lot of people um, have things they want to, to talk about that um, they might not have a lot of places to be able to do that. And so I really right. am just wanting to, to hold space for people and, and whatever, whatever brings them to therapy and whatever rises up in that time that we're working together. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Gina. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Thank you so much, Noah. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Morgan Grace, licensed clinical social worker, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of specialty, generational trauma and in utero processing. Next Quest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.